0: The following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Well, the happy couple were holding hands when they entered KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken, To get their chicken picnic box for lunchtime, they made a point of paying cash only, and they went to a secluded park nearby to enjoy their lunch. But when they opened that particular food box from KFC, they realized that instead of potatoes, gravy roll, and a couple of chicken chunks, they found a box containing an organized stack of cash. That's right. They laughed, they celebrated. They counted up over $10,000 in this little lunchbox. And then they looked at each other and all of a sudden got real serious. And they both sobered up, they put every last dollar back inside the box and they returned to the fast food restaurant. When they walked in the door, the manager of course was elated, without a credit card, he couldn't chase them down so basically it was gone. And for years, this particular restaurant had taken all of the yesterday's proceeds, put it in one of the lunch boxes. but this is the first time they actually gave it away to somebody and sold it. And so, interesting enough, he couldn't believe that they brought the money back. He kept saying, no one does that. No one does that. This, this is great. Thank you for bringing it back. He insisted that he give them a reward, which they refused. Then he said, well, at least let me call the editor and the photographer in the paper. Come down, take your picture. And they just dogmatically said, no way. And finally, the manager was a little confused, saying, well, why not? And the man leaned over to the manager and whispered in his ear, the woman that I am with is not my wife. (laughs) Interesting enough, their motivation was not to be righteous to do what's right, but guilt. They were not heroes or people of integrity. They were two sinners trying to cover up their sin. It's interesting how we can be confused by actions and confused by motives of heart. And the Bible does teach us that the church is going to have real believers in it, and then there are going to also be phonies. Phonies are everywhere. The Bible talks about in Matthew 13 that the real Christians, the wheat will be surrounded by those who are the tares, the phony Christian, and that's going to go on so much so that you can't even tell them apart. The real and the phony look the same, and the only way that they'll ever make a determination is actually when they face Jesus Christ at the final judgment called the harvest in the parable, and that's when he will divide the wheat from the tare. Since the birth of the church... The Bible's clearly taught us for 2,000 years that there have always been tares among the wheat. Uh, The Bible describes them in the parables of Matthew 13 as the shallow and thorny and rocky soils that produce no spiritual fruit. It's really those who draw near to God with their externals and their verbals, but their hearts are far away from Him. It's those who hear the Word of God but don't, what, do the Word of God, they have a faith that doesn't work and that's exactly what James has been talking about and in fact what's so frightening is the most phony and most of the phony aren't even aware that they are fake they think they're the real deal Matthew 7 scares me there are some who stand before Christ and they will say Jesus didn't we do all this in your name and Jesus will say to them depart from me I never knew you They thought they were the real thing. Understand, the Word of God teaches that there is one true way to God, and there are many false beliefs that the enemy has created that basically make you think that you're right with God when you're not. Students may think, well, my family is saved, so therefore I've got to be saved. Or they'll think, well, you know, I I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with girls that do. I've got to be good. I've been living pretty good, so I must be a believer. Adults will think I... I attend, I live moral, I'm a Republican, I hate abortion, I love America, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, I must be born again. But Jesus says this word, he will say, to many, I never knew you. So how do you know you have genuine faith? A faith that saves. Well, you need to read the book of James. You need the book of James. We've been studying the book of James now for 25 Sundays, this is the 26th. And we've been walking through this book, but interesting enough, sometimes when you're expositing through the Bible, you can lose the forest in the midst of the trees, right? You can miss the big picture. So today, as we wrap up this epistle, I wanted to make sure that you got the big picture. What was the main message? What is James trying to communicate to us? Well, what he's trying to say to us is that you need this book. The very first New Testament book ever written answers the question, how do you know you have saving faith? How do you know that you're genuinely born again? He gives you these tests. Now, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, James, he writes this book mainly to churches that are filled with people who have left Judaism. But when you leave a religion, you're often confused. You often bring baggage with you. You bring that into the church, and that's what happened. Some of them are thinking certain things about salvation that are not true. And so James is writing them to clarify, to make sure they know what it means to truly be born again and to help people avoid being deceived. James is as pointed as Proverbs. In fact, many, many commentators call James the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's very direct and his letter is made up of a series of tests that we've been studying paragraph by paragraph walking through this epistle to expose the fake and to clarify the genuine. He wants to make sure that it's clear that if you have a sham faith, or you have a saving faith. And so we're wrapping up our study with this overview of these tests and looking at the big picture and summarizing the main purpose of why he wrote. When faith is genuine, you need to understand this, probably write it down, that it is found in a heart that has been transformed to believe. Faith comes from a heart that has already been transformed to believe. God has to cause you, the Bible says, to be born again. You say, where do you get that from? Well, all throughout the New Testament, John 3, 1 Peter, etc. But you also need to understand that James himself said that you need to be born again. And he said that in chapter 1, verse 18. Take a look at it. It says, in the exercise of his will. This is his choice, his determination. It says, he brought us forth, meaning he changed you. He transformed you. He caused you to be born again by the word of truth. The very essence of salvation is right there in this passage. I, I often wish that Martin Luther had gotten this verse down because had he, he wouldn't have called James a strawy epistle. It basically is talking about that in order for you to pass the test of James, you've got to be born again. You've got to be transformed or you can't do it. And to demonstrate what a real Christian looks like, he gives you the test that would then demonstrate and prove to you. Uh, I don't know. I used to you know, hang out with some pretty wild people, fun people, Christian people, but when I was in my later teens, I went to a party once, and the candy was actually chocolate-covered soap. Soap, yeah, yeah. You ever pop one of those babies in your mouth, you never forget it, right? Bubbles and all kinds of gross things go on. But they looked on the outside like C's candies, nuts, and chews. It looked on the outside and smelled on the outside like this is the best candy ever. Somebody spent a lot of time working on it to make this look really, really appetizing, smell really, really good, but when you popped it in and you made it true, man, you knew that you had something really, really bad, okay? Interesting enough, sometimes Christians or church attenders are like that. They look like it, they act like it, they smell like it, But when you look at their heart, which you can't do, but God can, it's not the real thing. It's not the real thing. So as we wrap up our study of this first epistle of your New Testament, of the 27 books, this is the first one that was written. As we wrap that up, we want to kind of screen most of the book and expose you to most of the tests so you can determine this morning and get the big picture if you're real or if you're phony. Listen, sometimes the... The negating part of exegesis is we get lost in those specific passages, and we don't see the big picture. When they got this epistle, they read the whole thing. They got the message that basically leading to a conclusion that wraps up the summary of this particular book. And basically, he's asking this question. Write it down. Is your faith one that works? Is your faith one that works? Is it demonstrated that you're born again so that out of that heart comes a different kind of lifestyle? Well, let's look at the test. Let's go through them together. Review for some of you, maybe summarize for some of you, and then get to the conclusion. Number one, the test that starts this particular letter is the test of trials. Number one, the test of trials. Look at verse two of James chapter one, and it says this: Consider it all what joy, joy my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now. Literally, James is saying, choose joy. Now, joy isn't kind of a weird happiness. It's not jumping up and down. It's basically in kind of an internal smile that says, I know God's in control. I know he loves me. I know I can trust him. I know that he's all wise and never makes a mistake. He never says oops. He never does that. So if he's allowed this trial in my life because he's sovereign, then I know I can trust him for that trial. And he says in this text, these trials are specifically designed for you. I know you've said this. Why doesn't he get that trial? Why doesn't somebody else have that trial? Because they don't need that trial. You need that trial, and that's why it was given to you. They're designer trials. Like Gucci, you have your own designer trials from God to shape you into the man or the woman that God wants you to be, and that's why you can choose joy. You can choose joy because you're going, I have confidence that he's in control. Listen, the older you get as a believer, the more that little trials don't affect you and God has to bring out different ones to kind of, you know, keep you growing and keep knifing you into the man or woman that he wants you to be, right? So as you grow, it keeps getting refining, but you can choose joy knowing that he's in control, knowing that he loves you, knowing that he's all-wise, knowing that he doesn't make a mistake and he's all-powerful. And that's the picture. When life gets hard and it beats you up, how do you respond? That's what he's asking, when life throws you down how do you respond now most of you know the great Olympic athlete Eric Liddell and he also became an incredible missionary in China and gave his life there to on the mission field but you know that movie I think chariots of fire and and it's true that in one of the earlier races of Eric Liddell basically he was pushed down by another runner literally pushed down now he could have responded a variety of ways to being pushed down correct He could have laid there feeling sorry for himself and blaming everybody else. He could have laid there and had a Christian tantrum, why it's so unfair. He could have complained to the official and saying, this is not right, you need to fix this, why would you allow this? Or he could have laid there going, God, I'm not going to get up, why would you even allow this to occur? Or he could have done what I would have done. You say, Chris, what would you have done? I would have ran across the track ran to the runner who pushed me down, pushed him down, and then aerated his bum with my cleats. Okay, so (laughs) that's what I would have done. But Eric Liddell is a truly godly man. He rolled back to his feet, got back on the track, ran that race, and it is true, he won that race. Now, that's the kind of man he was in the sense of when life pushes you down. The question I'm asking you is, what do you do? Do you respond with confident joy? Again, not a happiness, but a soft confidence knowing that God is in control, knowing that your difficult pressures, and by the way, trials here are rightly translated pressure. you have any pressure in your life? That's God, okay, giving you shaping instruments to make you into the man or woman that he wants you to be. And as you go through this, knowing that they're personally designed by an all-wise, all-powerful, loving God just for you, that he has a great purpose for his glory and your good, are you responding with joy? That soft confidence. How are you when circumstances and life in general are unfair? The phony Christian does not fare well. They show themselves, even the parables of Matthew 13, they walk away when it gets hard, when it gets heated, when it gets difficult, but the true Christian will desire to trust God. Will you respond with joy every single trial, yes or no? No. You're not going to do it perfectly, but you're going to do it progressively, progressively, directionally, but never perfectly, but do you pass the test of genuine faith? That's test number one. Test number two in your outline. The test of responsibility. Responsibility. Look at chapter one, verses 13 and 14. I'm trying to give the summary verses of each main paragraph. Verses 13 and 14 say of chapter one, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is, watch this, carried away and enticed by his, what kind of lust? his own he's saying it's my lust I'm taking responsibility for it when life gets tough circumstances don't go your way when you fail who do you blame James says don't blame God don't blame God when you fail don't blame God when you fall don't do it who do you blame for your sins your faults your mistakes the phony Christian will not accept responsibility for their own actions That they love blaming others. Verse thirteen, they are blaming God, but with us it could be anyone. We learn this, don't we, when we're growing up from our brothers and sisters to blame our brothers and sisters. Anybody with me on this? That's where it started, and then we later on grow up and we say we're going to blame our parents, and then we blame our spouses, and then finally we move on to anyone and everyone, not just our own hearts. We don't look at our own hearts; we blame everyone else. That's the temper of our day the victimization of our culture and it's everyone else's fault not mine and the exact opposite is what the bible teaches the exact opposite this is not new you know this in the garden of eden correct when adam and eve sinned the first thing that adam did was to blame god and blame eve right he said the woman you gave me god Then Eve, if you look at the text, and I want you to read it, she blames the serpent. And the serpent, you know what he said? I don't know what he said. I have no idea. Okay, but Eve, they're all blaming. The first man and the first woman, the first thing they did was blame. A genuine Christian actually lives under the truth that you are the worst sinner that you know. The worst one. You know that, listen, you know that. If it's not your actions, it's your thinking. And if it's not your thinking, it's your attitude. But we all have experienced, if you're a genuine Christian, oh, wretched man that I am. Oh, wretched woman that I am. We all have experienced the fact that I've got to be the chief sinner. Paul, you've got to have it wrong. I'm the chief sinner. This is unbelievable. I want to be freed from this body of death. And that's why a true Christian accepts the responsibility for sin. When you first got saved, you confessed your sin before a holy God. You said, I'm responsible. My sin is what crucified Christ. Not, 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 Nobody else's. I did this wrong. I should be condemned forever. I should be going to hell. But I'm confessing and recognizing that I have sinned against a holy God. And when you do that, when God causes you to be born again, you will continue to confess. It's just part of who you are. Up until the point you enter into eternity, you're confessing sin. That's who you are, and again, Adam and Eve, the moment they sinned, they did blaming, but they also hid, right? First two things they did. They hid, they blamed, and ever since then, we love to hide from our responsibility, we love to hide and blame others. Today, it's an art. How do we do it? You go, my day was rough. That excuses my bad mood. The traffic was bad, that excuses our anger. The kids make me crazy, that excuses our binging. My parents said no, that excuses my rebellion. It's my history, it's my race, it's my upbringing, it's my income, it's my parents, it's my kids, it's my spouse, it's my schooling, it's my IQ, I'm just too dumb. We just excuse sin all the time. So do you pass the test of saying no, it's me? Now again, there are people who do sin against us, they need to be confronted, that's true, but primarily are you accepting responsibility for your sin? Do you pass the test? That would be the heart of a genuine born-again believer. And that's why James puts it there. Number three, the test of impartial love. The test of impartial love. Chapter 2, verse 13. After teaching about impartiality for 13 verses, he talks about the wealthy and not treating them special, not judging people on the, on the outside, the externals. What does he say in verse 13? He says, for judgment will be merciless, To the one who has shown no mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. What's he saying here? If you show no mercy to others, God will show no mercy to you. But what does mercy have to do with partiality? I'm so glad you asked. Listen, here it is. When you were saved, did you deserve to be saved? Yes or no? No. You were extended mercy. Grace, love, true, but mercy. God didn't give you what you deserve, that's mercy. And when you realize that what you deserve was eternal torment and hell forever, not just a day, not just a week or a month or a year, but forever, and you deserve that for your sin, but God determined to give you mercy instead of judgment, then when you're overwhelmed by the reception of mercy, you will start to treat others with mercy because you receive mercy. You'll not look at others going, oh, that horrible person, or that you know, person who's treating you unfair, or that one's so unjust. You'll go, wait a minute, how many times should I be wiped out by God, but I was given what? Mercy. So therefore, I extend mercy to others. That's why it's here. That's why he says it. And it's an indication of who you are, because without Christ, we tend to look at externals. But when we're in Christ, we go, but they should receive mercy like I receive mercy, and we begin to look at their heart. A serious illustration of this, and I shared this with you before, but remember the the son who called his folks from Vietnam, and he was wondering if he could bring a friend home, a friend who was severely wounded, he only had one leg, one arm, and one eye, and the parents were hesitant. They didn't want to be burdened with somebody who was so, you know, totally messed up uh, physically, and so they said, sure, son, he could come for a while, but they made it clear. Later, they got news that their boy had died. And when the body came home, they discovered that it was their son who had one leg, one arm, and one eye. He had called his parents to test their love. Were they impartial? And finding it lacking, he never recovered. How you treat others is an indication of your relationship to the lord have you received mercy so much mercy that you cannot help but then to show mercy to others doesn't mean we overlook you know damaging things we're just saying how you accept others shows whether you really know and love god and god says if you don't love others then you don't love him he's very clear about that in first john biblical love is giving it's sacrificial it's sharing it's action it's accepting it's trusting And I know many of you have been burned badly in the past by people, sometimes even by church people, sometimes even by church leaders. But understand, true love, biblical love, believes all things, trusts, sacrifices regardless. Stop looking at the outside. And he says to the readers here, stop looking at their wealth or their lack of wealth. Don't treat people partially. Learn to forgive when they treat you badly and unjustly. Learn to respond in mercy. You say, Chris, I can't do it. You're right, you can't. Christ has to do it through you. He has to do it through you by being filled with the Spirit, trusting in His Word. Do you pass the test? Do you pass the test? Number four, the test of good deeds. Read James chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, the test of good deeds. If a brother, he says in verse 15, or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. He's saying if your belief in Christ does not show itself in good deeds, it's the wrong belief. You see, to know for certain you have true saving faith, to know for sure that you're a genuine Christian, all you have to do is look at What's coming out of your life? Because if you have a new born again heart, you're going to want to do righteous deeds. You're going to want to do produce fruit in ministry. You're going to want to give. You're going to want to manifest godly behavior. You're going to want to have a heart that burns for God. You're going to want it. Faith without action is dead. Faith without service is useless. Faith without works is not saving faith, according to James. Practically, don't ask God to guide your footsteps if you're unwilling to move your feet. In other words what you're saying is this has got to be manifested. And John 15 verse 8 says that a Christian is known by their fruit. In fact, it'll be much fruit. In fact, it says in Matthew chapter 3 verse 8 that says Christians are to bring forth fruit in keeping with their repentance if they're truly repented if they're truly born again they're going to bring forth fruit and ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says genuine believers are created for good works which god has actually art prepared beforehand you're going to be created for good works if you are a real christian it will make a difference in your life your lifestyle would be different if your christianity makes very little difference in how you live then you are not in possession of saving faith Sadly, there are thousands of church attenders in our day who are thinking they're headed to heaven when they're actually on the road to hell, the broad road. Let me be clear. Write this down. Believing the Bible brings salvation, obeying the Bible proves salvation. Believing the Bible brings salvation, obeying the Bible proves salvation, not perfectly, but progressively, from a new heart that wants to obey. The new, internal, born-again heart in regeneration will always show itself externally Through your behavior, you'll see it in sacrifice. You'll see it in service. You'll see it in worship. You'll see it in giving. You'll see it in caring for others. And most of all, obeying the word of God. Now, one poor point: it is the direction of your life, not the perfection of your life. Does any Christian live the Christian life perfectly? Yes or no? No. And you never will until you enter into heaven. But you're headed that way. You want to go that way. You may be falling flat on your face with sin, but you're going to want to get back up and keep going. You'll have a heart that wants to, that's willing. A false faith claims to have salvation, may even embrace sound doctrine, but a false faith doesn't submit well, it doesn't repent well, it doesn't change very much, and it is not faithful to serve. My favorite illustration of this is the believing soldier during World War II, he's driving, turns a corner, and he sees a little orphan, starving, little skinny orphan, just kind of with his face pressed up against the glass of a bakery, and his heart goes out to him, and his compassion gets the best of him. He stops his Jeep, he walks over to the boy, kind of startles him, and says, son, would you like some of those? And the boy could only just nod his head yes. And so he walks in, buys a half a dozen, comes out with a bag, just gives him the bag, and walks back to the, to the Jeep. And the, the boy immediately starts eating, eating, and then he's watching the soldier kind of walk across the street and then get into his Jeep. And then all of a sudden he runs over across the street, looks at the soldier, looks up at him, and in broken English says, mister, are you God? Because we're never more like Christ than when we give. For God so loved the world that he gave. Understand, a true Christian does good deeds. Believers, true believers, are doers of the word, not merely hearers. The greatest among you is the servant, and here it is, faith without works is dead. It's not saving faith. Do you pass the test? Number five. The test of speech. The test of speech. James chapter 3 verse 2. Again, the whole book made up of test after test after test. He says in verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. He's just basically saying that as the older you get, the more you will control your tongue and what God is saying here basically is what my mom used to say to me you know when she thought I was sick she'd say say ah and she would look into my mouth and go I want to see if there's any sickness there well what does God see when he says to you say ah and he looks at your words what does he see because they reveal your heart what does God say and Jesus specifically in Matthew chapter 12 verse 34 he says for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart so The heart of a believer and the heart of a make-believer are evidenced by their speech. Ugly speech comes from an ugly heart. Bitter speech comes from a bitter heart. Dirty speech comes from a dirty heart. Angry words come from an angry heart. What you say when you're mad, what you talk about with your friends, what you text to others in secret exposes the real condition of your heart. It's just a window. Your speech. James says your speech tells you who you really are. And a church attending non-believer can't or will not control their tongue. They'll continue to complain. They'll continue to criticize. They'll continue to gossip. But a born again believer is going to take steps to guard their mouth. Guard their mouth. In fact, in Psalm 39, verse 1, it says, I will guard my ways. In what ways? That I might not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle. Say, is this serious? Yes, it is. One of the great lies that you told when you were younger was sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never what? That's a lie right out of the pit of hell. I've said that multiple times to you. Bones will heal stronger than they've been before but words can leave open wounds that you carry your entire life. Death and life, the Proverbs tell us, is in the power of the tongue. It's pretty serious stuff. What do your words tell you about the condition of your heart? Do you have a real faith or a phony faith? And that's why James puts it here. Do you pass the test? Number six is the test of separation this is not very popular in our day but it's definitely a biblical truth and he says in chapter four verse four chapter four verse four whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself the what of god the enemy of god are you one who doesn't sin in a big way externally but in your heart you want to in your heart are you envious of the sin of your unsaved friends in the world what do i mean by that well you don't commit sexual sin but do you lust you don't kill but do you hate you don't gamble but do you cheat you don't go to nude bars but do you watch it on your phone your computer or your flat screen the big question is 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 your life geared toward as close as you can living next to the world without sinning or is your goal to remain as close to christ and as far away from sinning as possible that's really the goal Now some of you men know what i'm talking about because you've dealt with electricity anybody have to deal with electricity now We're not talking about 220 because i've i've been down that road and you don't want to grab on hold at 220, right? I've been a hold one time of 120 and actually couldn't let go of a drill and was being electrocuted when I was about 11 years old Never forgot it. Uh have a real respect for electricity, especially when they're going You know like that. I usually don't play with the wires at that point. You know what i'm saying? Is anybody with me on that? Okay, now some of you are like real gutsy and you're, you know, men's men and you're construction guys and you can do all that kind of stuff. I look at that and go, I'm gonna die, right? Anybody? So, interesting enough, I think that's a wonderful illustration for how we should respond to the sins that we battle with. When you know it's a, then you ought to stay far away, correct? That's the caution that he's telling you here. Do you live as close to the world as possible? How are you justifying evil things in your life right now that you watch or cling to and you say, oh, Jesus will forgive me, or or, it's okay, or I'm under grace, it's no problem to compromise here. James says all genuine Christians will want to be separate from the world in their heart. Out of love for Christ and a hatred for the sin that Christ died for, we stay away from it. We live in the world, but we don't want to be what? Of the world. The best way to illustrate it is the boat. All right, the boat's in the water. We want to be the boat on the water, but we don't want the water of the world in the boat. And that's the issue. Do you pass the test? Whoever wishes to be the friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. Test number seven the test of dependence. Dependence. Read James chapter 4, verses 13, 14, and 15. He says, Come now. You who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. None of us do. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord, what, wills, we shall live and also do this or that. Who's in control of your life? God is. And do you live your life believing that God is in control and live under that, if the Lord wills? Listen, every time you complain, you're basically saying, I don't believe that God is sovereign. Because the moment you complain, you're saying, I don't believe in your sovereign control. That He controls all the circumstances of your life, and you're saying, I don't believe it. Do you allow anything to control you? Addictions in your life, idols in your life. Anything you own. That you can't give away, you don't own it, it owns you. It's controlling you. Anything that controls you, you don't control it, it enslaves you. Do you genuinely live life believing only the Lord wills? I'm living under his sovereign hand. Are you truly dependent upon the Lord, trusting only in him for everything, every person, every event, every circumstance, and every relationship? You know, what are the idols that you depend on more than Christ? I did a little survey of our congregation, and this is what they came up with. Moms would say children. Dads would say career. Your reputation, your ministry, your position, your addiction to chocolate. Listen, repent of your chocolate. Bring it up here on the platform, and I will eat all of it. Okay? So understand, it may not be chocolate. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's um, mac and cheese. You know, as a kid, you never gave it up. That's what I heard on the patio. I have to have my mac and cheese. It's kind of like intervenus. Um, I, I, I hesitate saying this, and, and basically you'll probably write me off. I'll have no credibility in your heart. But maybe some of you have an addiction to coffee. <laughs> Ice cream, pizza, popcorn, fresca! <laughs> Affection. Music. Friends. Sports. Movies. Disneyland. The zoo. Clothing. Jewelry. Your pet. Yeah, we got that reaction the second hour too. Don't say fluffy. Cars. Computers. Video games. No elbows, ladies. Phones, apps, books, travel, more. Listen, when something controls you in an ongoing way and you know it's controlling you and you don't do anything about it is evidence that you're not a Christian. Because you're going to say, I am not going to allow anything to control me. That's 1 Corinthians 6. Nothing. I'm not going to do it. We're to live dependent upon the Lord, walk according to his word. Are you ready? The dependency comes according to the spirit of God. The only person who's supposed to be controlling you is God himself by His Spirit, through His Word. That's it. Listen to this rewritten psalm written by a 23-year-old gal who died from her addiction. It doesn't have to be drugs. Hers was drugs. But she's writing about anything that could control you. She wrote it this way. It's pretty moving. King Heroin is my shepherd. I shall always want. He makes me to lie down in the gutters. He leadeth me beside troubled waters. He destroyeth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of wickedness. Yes, I shall walk through the valley of poverty and will fear no evil, for thou, heroine, art with me. Thy needle and thy capsule comfort me. Thou strippest the table of groceries in my, the presence of my family. Thou robbest my head of reason. My cup of sorrow runneth over. Surely, heroin addiction shall stalk me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the damned forever." Found in the car with this dead woman was this written message. Jail didn't cure me, nor did hospitalization help me for long. The doctor told my family it would have been better, indeed, kinder, if the person who got me hooked on dope had taken a gun and blown my brains out. Oh, I wish to God he had, my God, how I wish it. We gather together on Sundays and we fellowship and we love each other, but there are people in our midst who are suffering under a massive addiction. And if that's you, today's the day. Tell someone. Tell someone that loves you. Let them know and start praying. No one's going to be shocked. We know how evil sin is. We know how sneaky it is. We know how it can enslave you. And if that's you, deal with it. Live life if the Lord wills, dependent on Him, Trusting in him, relying on his word, relying on his spirit. Understand, there are many more tests in James. There's the test of obedience. You know, you're not just a hearer, but a doer of the word. Uh, It's not that Christ is your first priority, but Christ is first in every priority. Uh, There's the test of obedience, there's the test of honesty you tell the truth, and when you lie, you try to make it right. The test of prayer, that you're dependent upon the Lord. The test of riches, that you use them for the glory of God. That they're not your wealth, they're His, to use for His purposes and His glory and your good. And the entire book of James is just one test after another. It keeps going until the very end, and the conclusion the conclusion of the book is the one that shocks you, and that's what we looked at last week. Look at it one more time James chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. It says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him to know that who te- turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Look at that phrase. Phrase by phrase, look at that verse. It says, strays from the truth. That's non-saving faith. Another definition of non-saving faith, it touches you but doesn't transform you. You talk about it, you think about it, but you don't own it. You don't live it out. The straying from the truth. And then if you turn them back, that's the 180 degree turn from sin to Christ. From doing things your way to doing things Christ's way. From abandoning your life to embracing his life. It's that turn him back. And the error of his way, this is the scariest part of this verse, that's the delusion of false faith. That's the deception of false faith. The people think that they're saved, but they're not. And then he says, when you turn someone that way from this path, you save his soul from death. He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about eternal death. What is God telling you? is this if you do not pass the test of james that we've been studying now for 26 weeks and again not talking about perfection but talking about the direction of your life a desire a willingness if you don't pass those tests even in your failure you still want to then if you're not passing them then you need to turn from your sin and follow christ as your chief and master you need to lose your life and find christ you need to first thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 turn to god from idols Stop telling yourself you're saved when nothing in your life evidences it Stop telling yourself you're saved when nothing in your life proves it It doesn't matter if you walk denial it doesn't matter if you made a decision once it doesn't matter if you prayed a prayer it Doesn't matter if you had emotional experience you've been going to church for 30 years It doesn't matter if you felt bad over your sin or believe right doctrine. You must be born again You must be converted And when that happens a true christian will be known by their works They'll be known by it. Fruit, good deeds, change life, transformation. It'll show in the way you treat others. That's what he's been talking about. The way you speak, the way you give, the way you serve. All of it will be fruit. If you have a new nature, it will show in new behavior. If you have an old nature, it will show in your old behavior. It shows in your lifestyle. If you are a Christian, it will make a difference. If you're not saved then it will also show in the way that you live. You are not saved by being good. But once you're saved, you'll start living good. There are two ways to go to hell. One way is to have sex, do drugs, live for yourself, be all about you, blame everybody else, cuss, cheat, hurt, all that. The other way to go to hell is to look like a Christian but don't follow Christ. That's the other way. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me If you don't pass the test of james the whole point of this a whole letter they read it all at once Then only two things can be true one You're disobedient and you're awaiting god's discipline of spanking He's going to correct your path because he spanks all his children He promises to and he says if I don't spank you you're not my son So you're disobedient awaiting discipline or you're deceived awaiting damnation. That's it. There's only two choices You're disobedient, awaiting discipline, or you're deceived, awaiting damnation. I know the parents of one special child, I know of them, they prayed for this child, they wanted to have this child, and finally they did have a child, and they were very overprotective parents. So it took a year before they finally left the child with a sitter, and they went out for a little date night at a local diner just down the street from their house, And sadly, as they were sitting there smiling and enjoying their time, a fire truck went by and they got all concerned and they looked at each other and kind of laughed at each other because they were, you know, those overprotective parents. But then another fire truck went by and their smiles left. And then another fire truck went by and they couldn't stand it any longer. They ran back to their car and they arrived home and all their fears were realized. Their house was ablaze in fire. There on the lawn was the sitter, The first thing she said was, I couldn't get to her. So the dad broke through the fire line with absolute smoke, not being able to see anything, worked his way upstairs, got into her room, fished around in the crib, and scooped up his daughter and made his way out of the house when the house collapsed. And then his heart stopped because he looked down and didn't have his little baby girl but her life-size baby doll. That's my fear for you, that you would scoop up a false faith thinking that this is going to rescue you and realizing only when you face Christ that it was a fake faith. James has been laboring to communicate to you that your faith will evidence itself in the way you live, and the way you speak, and the way you give. And the way you serve. Let's make sure. That your faith works. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we pray. That you would take your word. And you would change our lives. That you would. Crack through the hard heartedness of some. Who have deceived themselves. Over years and years of churchianity. And not actually embracing Christ. Not actually knowing him that actually being born again and father help james's test the word of god to penetrate their heart to help them to see that they desperately need to cry out to you to change their heart so they can then respond in saving faith that requires your work that you have to do it let them cry for that ask for that to make sure that it's genuine and for the rest of us may we have the courage to talk to our friends and family And to ask that hardest of all question that is so unpopular today. Which would be, does your faith work? Are you a doer of the word? Are you wanting to follow Christ? Are you willing to do whatever he asks you to do? Are you worshiping with your whole heart and whole life? Make us courageous enough to ask those hard questions. And we'll thank you and we'll praise you for what you'll do. We pray, Father, that we would hear the message of this great epistle and that we would please you with our response. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks and have a great day.